Luke 1, beginning in verse 26, this is where it all begins. It's called the Great Annunciation. It's that great moment where the angel Gabriel comes and announces the beginning of all that would transpire on Christmas. Don't take my word for it. Look with me at verse 26 and read with me down through verse 38. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, what any sane person would say, How can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, she's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. You see, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, so let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Why don't you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, what we just read defies all of our natural, rational sensibilities. This is such a commonplace story. Lord, I fear there are many within the sound of my voice that just let this story go in one ear and out the other and have not taken a step back to soberly consider whether or not they believe it. This is miraculous, Lord. This is supernatural. It's otherworldly. And for, for those in this room who are harboring doubts, I pray by the power of your Spirit you would drive them away. For we, Lord, who profess to believe the otherwise unbelievable, for we, Lord, who profess to believe in the supernatural, we pray, O oh God, that you would help our unbelief. For all too often, we must confess, O oh God, all too often we, we stare at these wonders and we yawn. And so I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open eyes anew this day to see the wonders of this great Christmas text of the Annunciation. And I ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you believe in miracles? Do you? Now, I'm not talking about those so-called tongue-in-cheek miracles, that miracle drug you saw in the commercial, the miracle game your team just won. 
feel like Al Michaels up here. Do you believe in miracles? You remember that from the 80s? I'm not talking about these cheap ways we throw around the word miracle. I'm saying, do you really believe in the definition of the word miracle? Do you believe in that which has no explanation apart from a God? Now, I trust a great many of you gathered here today would say, well, yes, Kyler, of course I believe this. I mean, I profess to follow a, a God. I actually believe there is a supernatural. I believe there's a God. And I believe He revealed Himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe He died on the cross and He rose from the dead. I believe, but I'm wondering, do you really believe this? Because if you do, if you can say with full assurance, I believe in miracles, you have now positioned yourself to stand against the grain of most of our culture. You will find yourself alone, isolated in most academic circles. So many of you students, high schoolers, college students, you will be mocked, maligned, ridiculed for saying you believe in the supernatural, for the academy where you study is, I trust, drenched, soaked, saturated in what they call naturalism. The idea that there is nothing supernatural, that all there is is what we can see, taste, touch, smell. It's those things that we can scientifically verify. Do you believe in miracles? For if you do, you will stand against the grain of your academic circle. You will stand against the grain of your social circles. Just look at our politics today. Our politics have degenerated down to a point where if we cannot give some sort of base, rationalistic explanation for any position we have, it's considered insanity otherwise. If you claim that your morality is informed by the supernatural, you are again mocked, maligned, ridiculed. Are you prepared to say in the face of a political stream of a social current, I believe in miracles? It's getting so bad that if you actually will say, I believe in miracles, you will find yourself not only lonely in academic circles, not only lonely in social circles, you will all the more find yourself alone in theological circles. For there is a great current of so-called Christianity. I call it so-called because it's not Christianity. It's by definition what is called liberal Christianity. And don't hear politics in that word. Liberal Christianity by definition is Christianity that does not believe in the Bible, doesn't believe it's true, does not believe in the supernatural. And there are a great many of you in your places of employment. There are a great many of you at UNC Charlotte. There are a great many of you in your local high school who are surrounded by people who claim to know Jesus but do not believe in the supernatural, have sought to take the naturalistic, materialistic, empirical impulses of the day and hold the Bible in the same hand and bring it together and say, this works, this fits, and my friends, it doesn't because what I want you to see is this book I hold in my hand is unapologetically, unequivocally a supernatural yeah. book. From start to finish, top to bottom, you cannot excise it. Try as you might to take this book and cut out all that is miraculous, as Thomas Jefferson once attempted, you will lose this book. 
Just consider with me. It begins with a supernatural creation. A maker spoke, out of nothing came something, a miracle. He flooded the world and saved a man and his family. Miraculous. The Bible continues with a miraculous story of a tower called Babel where he mixes all the languages and he drives them out to all the world. The Bible is filled with the miraculous. For example, a donkey starts talking in this book. A man gets swallowed by a whale. A bush is burning and out of this bush comes a voice. These fantastic ten plagues startle, marvel the known world. There's manna that comes from heaven. There is a serpent made of brazen bronze that if you look upon it, you will be saved from the bites of the serpent. You just continue through this Bible and you're going to see the river Jericho parted, the Dead Sea parted. You're going to see the walls of Jericho fall. You're going to see the fleece of Gideon become a great marker of God's miraculous work. You're going to see the sun and the moon stand still. You're going to see the mighty miraculous life and ministry of the judge called Samson. You're going to see Elijah get taken up in a uh, fiery chariot. You're going to see Naaman get miraculously healed by going into the water. You're going to see this iron an axe head float. You're going to see Daniel get saved from the lion's den and his friends get saved from the fiery furnace. This is a miraculous book. But there is no miracle greater and consequently more contested than the one that comes next. C.S. Lewis called this miracle the grand Miracle of miracles. For after page upon page of miraculous intervention, after 400 years of silence, we come to the Gospel of Luke. And from the lips of an angel springs an announcement of a miracle that feels unbelievable. The miracle of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. This Christmas season, I pray you see that the call of Christmas is so much weightier than sentimentality. I pray that all the sentimentality of Christmas will be drowned out by the supernatural story we see beginning in verse 26. For in my judgment, this text bids we remember that the call of Christmas is to believe the otherwise unbelievable. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe this? Do you believe what the angel Gabriel evidently believes as we see in verse 37? Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe this? Do you believe that a naturalized Christianity is no Christianity at all? If you take out the supernatural and you believe that God is limited, you have gutted it to the core. Do you believe with the angel Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God? Do you believe with Mary, the mother of Jesus? Let this be, as she says in verse 38, according to your word. Just imagine Mary for a moment uttering those words. This young little peasant girl that's just been told that she is going to conceive the Son of God by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And instead of responding with, what? She could have laughed like Sarah of old 
And instead, what did she do? Verse 38, she submits with utmost faith. Lord, I'm your servant. Let this be according to your word. Do you believe with Gabriel? Do you believe with Mary? I pray that you would this Lord's day believe the otherwise unbelievable. That you would trust what seems untenable to you. That together we would stand even when we don't understand. That we would stand firmly on the same foundation Mary stood on. She stood on a foundation upheld by three miracles. Three miracles I see in this text that we must believe. These three miracles are like three supernatural pillars that will uphold your faith. And like any three-legged stool, if you knock out just one of them, the whole house of cards is going to fall into a heap of sentimentality. So I want you to see with me these three miracles we must believe and may they undergird your faith this Christmas season. First, if you're taking notes, mark this down. Do you believe that Christ came by a miracle. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came in a way that stunned even the Bible? Just consider with me the whole narrative of the Bible. It begins as early as Genesis when God makes a precious promise that he is going to finally one day send somebody to crush the head of the serpent to save his people from their sins. And the rest of the Bible is trying to figure out who this guy is. Is it Seth who replaces Cain? And Abel. It's not Seth. Is it Noah? It ends up not being Noah. Is it Abraham? Or is it Isaac? Would it be Jacob? What about his son Joseph? Would it be Moses? Would it be one of the great prophets of old? Samuel was a pretty good guy. What about one of the judges of old? Was it one of them? What about one of the great kings? A lot of people thought it might be King David. Was it going to be one of the great prophets who went to all the people of God in the northern and southern kingdom of Israel? They kept wondering, is God going to fulfill this promise until he stops sending people? After he sends the prophet Malachi, there's 400 years of silence and they begin to wonder, has God forgotten? Has his arm grown short? Has he forgotten his promise to us? Will he send a Messiah? Until, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, the fullness of time had come, God finally sent forth His Son. And He did so through the annunciation, the announcement of an angel named Gabriel. Look with me at verse 26 and just notice how stunning this annunciation is. The angel comes and he comes to a most unlikely place. Verse 26 tells us he comes to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Galilee was the region north of Jerusalem. Nazareth was a tiny backwater town. Nobody lived there. I mean, there were probably dozens, maybe a hundred or more people that lived in this little town called Nazareth. It was not where you would expect God to send his Messiah. And he sends the, this great message that he's going to keep his promise, not only to an unlikely place, he sends it to unlikely people, to a virgin Parthenon in the Greek. It means what you think it means. This was a, a woman who has not been with a man. But it says an unusual word. She is betrothed to a man. Now, betrothal is not exactly like engagement today. It is similar, but not the same. In the Jewish culture, to be betrothed was tantamount to being married without consummating the marriage. So a betrothal was an engagement that was so serious that if you wanted to break it off, you had to literally get a divorce. It wasn't just a, uh, I got cold feet. You, it was a big deal. 
She was betrothed to a man named Joseph, but had not consummated the marriage. Consequently, she hears the Lord tell her she's going to have a child, and she goes, wait a minute, she's naturalistic just like you and I. She lives in this day, and she's thinking, well, this doesn't make sense. This isn't possible. How on earth can I have a child? Now, just consider how stunning it is that the Lord came to Mary and to Joseph. Mary was young, probably 12, 13, 14 years of age. That was common in that day. That was when a, a young woman would become uh, betrothed, typically. Joseph was not the old, probably long-bearded man that you would normally suspect. He was probably a younger guy, probably in that stage where he's just starting to try to grow a beard. <laughs> this was a young couple. Come to think of it, he probably looked a lot like Blake Maxwell. Poor guy, he's my age, and he's still trying to grow a beard, so you all pray for him. <laughs> now consider what the angel says is going to happen to this woman. It's an unlikely place, an unlikely people, and the plan is so unlikely, it's astonishing. For he says, you are going to conceive a child. And she is understandably perplexed by this. I, this doesn't make sense. I can't have a child. Go down to, with me to verse 35, and he explains exactly how this is going to happen. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He is going to overshadow you. Episciazo. It means literally to encompass to surround or to influence you. It's the same word used when the Lord appears at the Mount of Transfiguration in that great cloud and covers them all. This is the Spirit coming and doing what only the Spirit can do to conceive within this young virgin girl a child that would be unlike any other child. The virgin birth of Christ, the great incarnation of our maker, the grand miracle of miracles. Now, I just want you to take a step back with me for a moment and consider the wonder of this moment. There have been some so-called miraculous births throughout history. I did a little Googling and noticed that one lady, the lady who's had more children than any other, was some lady that lived in Russia in the 1700s, and guess how many kiddos she had? 69. 27 births. So there were a lot of twins and triplets in there, but um, 27 births is nothing to yawn at. My word. One lady had nine children at one time, called a non-uplet. I think that's how you pronounce it. That was in Morocco. If you thought that was wild, one lady had a child that weighed 23 pounds and 9 ounces. <laughs> now that is a miracle. And one lady had a child that was only 14 ounces. Smallest weight. All of those would lead us to want to grasp for words to describe the marvel of those moments. And you would be tempted to use the word miraculous. In the same way you'd be tempted to use the word miraculous with a bunch of fantastic births we see even in the Bible. For example, Isaac. Remember, Abraham and, I, and uh, Sarah were too old to have a child. And they had Isaac, but they still conceived him naturally. 
Jacob and Esau were conceived, and it was a pretty miraculous way they came about. The Lord prophesied to Isaac and Rebekah that they would come. Do you recall the story of Manoah and his wife who thought they couldn't have children either and God graciously gave them in their old age the child Samson? Or perhaps you remember Elkanah and Hannah who had their little child Samuel, the famed prophet. This was miraculous, so-called miraculous birth. Or even great John the Baptist who precedes immediately our story who God sent the angel Gabriel to his parents Zechariah and Elizabeth and said you're going to have this boy but none of these births astounding as they all are none of them can compare to the matchless grand miracle of miracles of the incarnation of Jesus Christ this great virgin birth and my question to you is why does this matter why does it matter that Christ came by a miracle. Is it necessary to believe this? There's a lot of people that think this is a myth. There's a lot of you that think that this is not something you need to stake your claim on. There are some pastors out there that have despicably said, if I find out one day that God had a, that Jesus had a father named Larry and it was literally his father, I don't care. It doesn't affect my faith. It would affect mine. This is the heart of the faith. The virgin birth is critical, and I want to show you why. The reason why we must put our weight on the miracle that Christ came by a miracle is because, secondly, mark this down, I want you to see that Christ came not merely by a miracle. He came for a miracle. For notice what the text says in verse 31. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, before I plumb the depths of that name, just imagine if you had the job of naming the child of God. Just imagine if you were commissioned with naming the Messiah, the Christ. I remember having the responsibility of naming our child and thinking, my word, this is going to stick with her till the day she dies. This is a weighty responsibility. Now, imagine having the name above all names as your decision. Imagine being the one that has to name the person of, of whom more songs have been written, more books have been written, more paintings have depicted, more statuary has been made, more words have been uttered about this name than any other name. Imagine having that responsibility. Well, the good news is Mary and Joseph were off the hook. For the angel Gabriel comes and says, I will give you his name. And there is a reason why. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, where the word Joshua comes from. It literally means Yahweh saves. Matthew tells us in Matthew 1 and verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a miraculous name for it shows us that his purpose in coming was to do what no man, woman, or child could do. He came to work a miracle. Now stop for a second. All the people of Israel were expecting a Messiah to come. They were expecting somebody to come and save them, but not from their sins. They thought somebody was going to come and save them from the political uh, issues of Rome. All throughout the Old Testament, they thought somebody was going to come and do that. And when Matthew tells us that Jesus is coming to save us from their sins, they're all thinking, how is this possible? I don't know that you can be saved from your sins. How can a man do that? How is it possible for Jesus to be this one? And here's why. You ready for this? Oh, see the logic. See the glory of Christmas in this simple statement. 
Jesus came, virgin born, for we who are naturally born, so that we could be born again. All of us are born naturally, the Bible says, in sin. We are born naturally predisposed like our forefather Adam. We are born with a sin nature. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul tells us. We are hopelessly lost. The only hope we have is if one comes and breaks the pattern, breaks the curse, breaks the chain. And no natural born man, woman, or child could do that. Somebody had to come and be born a different way. Somebody had to, be, had to come and be virgin born, had to be miraculously born to enable us to experience the miracle of new birth. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He is named Jesus for He came virgin born of Mary to save His people from their sins, to cause us to be born again. Do you realize that the miracle of the incarnation makes possible the miracle of salvation? That our natural birth demands a virgin birth to bring about the new birth? Praise God for Christmas. Christmas makes it possible for you to taste new life in Christ. He came by a miracle. He came for a miracle. But who is this Jesus? Thirdly and finally, I want you to see in these verses that He who came by a miracle and He who came for a miracle came as a miracle. This Christ child is unlike anybody we've ever seen. I just want to lift up for you in these final moments the child the Christ of Christmas. I want you to look at Him anew. And I pray by the power of the Spirit, all the sentimentality of Christmas would be drowned out in the supernatural wonder and glory of this Jesus who came as a miracle. Gabriel just couldn't help but exclaim. He just cries out, look at this Jesus. Verse 32, He will be called great. He will be called Son of the Most High. He is telling us in this moment that this Jesus has an identity unlike anybody else. He is different than anybody. He is a man. He was born 100% man. He was born to a woman. But he is not a mere man. This God who came as a man is at the same time God. My friends, this is what we call the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. If you want to go home and impress your friends or win the question on Jeopardy, it's called the hypostatic union. From the word hypostasis, which means the nature, the two natures of Jesus. He is 100% God and 100% man. He is, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. Just imagine with me the glory of this child. The Jesus we worship is not just a moral leader. He is not just a wise man. He is not just a prophet of old. He is the Word made flesh. God with us. This is one with an identity unlike any other. One with an authority 
unlike any other. For it says, this child is going to be given the throne of his father David. And he is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and ever. Just consider the matchless authority of our Maker prophesied by the angel Gabriel at this great annunciation. He is telling us that this Jesus is the one all the Old Testament people had waited for. They had been waiting for one who would come after their great-grandfather David. They were waiting for one who would rule like King David. And at last this Jesus comes and he says, this Jesus who is unlike anybody in his identity, he is going to be unlike anybody in his authority. Which if you know the story of Jesus... You read the Gospels, you may find yourself tempted to agree with all the Jews of the day and say, he doesn't seem like one with authority because he's getting killed. He gets hung on a cross. I thought he was going to conquer it. This is not the authority we thought. When Jesus reminds us that his authority, his kingdom is not of this world, His is a kingdom that will outlast the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Chaldean Empire, the Greek Empire, the British Empire, the United States of America. His is a kingdom that will have no end. His authority will last forever. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the name above all names. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the one to whom all the angels of heaven and we who will join that great cosmic chorus forevermore. He is the one to whom we will sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory, honor, and power forever and ever. Amen. Because this Christ child, Jesus, who was unlike any other in his identity, he was also unlike, he is indeed also unlike anybody else in his authority. But this is no megalomaniac. This is no power-hungry figure. This is one whom the Bible describes. Just look with me down, if you will, at verse 35. He is one who will be called holy which means he is not only unlike anybody in his identity, he's not merely unlike anybody in his authority. Praise God, he is unlike anybody in his purity. For this Jesus is matchless in perfection. He is without spot or blemish. Just step back with me and consider the miracle of that. Think of your great heroes. Think of the most exemplary people in your life. Think of the most exemplary people in history. And now watch them fade into the shadows before the light of His glory and grace, perfect in holiness, blameless, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. This Jesus was unlike any other. Which is why we will not only sing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory, honor, and power forever. We will at the same time join the seraphim of heaven and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will sing that forever and ever and ever. For this Christ child who came by a miracle, this Christ child who came for a miracle, This Christ child came as a miracle. He is unlike anybody or anything this world has ever seen. And so I invite you this Lord's Day to just reflect with me. Consider 
the whole miracle of it all. Have you? Have you considered the supernatural foundation of this season? Have you considered that the tendency we all have in this culture to sentimentalize this season is borderline demonic? For it sucks out of our hearts and souls the glorious, matchless, supernatural reason for this season. Christmas, the call of Christmas is to believe the otherwise unbelievable. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that Jesus came by a miracle? The virgin birth? Do you believe He came for a miracle to bring you new birth? Do you believe He came as a miracle? Matchless in identity. Matchless in authority. Matchless in purity. Do you believe that you will one day stand before this walking miracle? And have you considered what a miracle it is that you will stand before Him one day? There is going to come a day where you are going to stand before your Maker. And when you do, you are going to believe in miracles on that day. For you will stand before Him and you will finally see, not by faith, but by sight, the full splendor of His matchless identity, God in the flesh. You will see Him in all of His regal authority and you will begin to sink into the ground. You will see Him burning in the fire of His holy purity and you will want to melt into the earth. And on that moment, He will come and He will take you and He will lift you to your feet. He will, as Jude says, make you stand before Him blameless. And how? How is this possible? How? Why can you stand before this holy God? In a word, Christmas. Because in that moment, you will stand before one who came by a miracle. Virgin born, breaking at last the curse of sin and death of all of we who are natural born, coming from Adam. You will stand before, as Paul describes, the second Adam. Perfect. You will taste and see the glory of the miracle he wrought in your life. You will be reborn. You will stand before Him blameless with great joy. And you will spend the rest of eternity gladly and joyfully praising the Christ of Christmas, declaring forever and ever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. My friends, thank God for Christmas. If it weren't for the virgin birth, we who are born naturally would have no hope. Amen. This Christmas, would you join me in praising God yes. for the miracle of all miracles? Jesus, who came by a miracle, who came for a miracle, and who came as a miracle. Oh, let's leave this place. Yes with full assurance of faith, going against the grain, against the stream, and saying, 
Say what you might, we believe in the otherwise unbelievable. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, I'm asking the Lord to do a work in your heart to drive out the sentimentality of Christmas and fill that void with the matchless wonder, weight, and hope of the supernatural glory of Christmas. Have you forgotten how critical and crucial the virgin birth is? Have you forgotten how miraculous your new birth is? Have you forgotten how glorious Jesus Christ is? If you have this day, I'd like to invite you to respond as Mary did. To believe what Gabriel believed. To cry out in just a moment as we sing, God, there is nothing impossible with you. To cry out with Mary, I believe. I am your servant, O God. Let this be true. Oh, I pray that this Christmas you would taste and see the matchless miracle of Jesus Christ. If you have not, there will be pastors down here at the front who would love to pray with you. We'll be in the lobby after the service. We would count it a high privilege to do that, to just talk with you. Please come find us. Don't hesitate. There are many of you that I haven't seen before who have gathered with us this day. Perhaps you've not been to Acre Grove before. You have, perhaps you've not been to a church before. There is a good sovereign God who has providentially called you this day to this room so that you might hear the glorious good news announced by the angel Gabriel and echoed by my lips this day that Christmas is about a miracle this world has never seen. And if you want to taste and see the miracle that Jesus came to enact in each of us, cry out in the silence of your chair, oh God, forgive me for my sin. Would you cause me to believe as Mary believed? Help me to see what they saw. Help me, oh God, to know this Jesus who came by a miracle, who came for a miracle, who came as a miracle. I want to believe, Lord. You cry out now in your chair. Father in heaven, by the power of your spirit, to the glory of Jesus, do this. I can't make this happen. I am utterly and completely powerless. And so would you awaken cold, dark, dead hearts. Oh, may we see you for who you really are this Christmas season. And I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? And as we stand and as we sing, the invitation to you this day is to come.